0: Hello and welcome to episode 153 of the Fertility Podcast. I'm Natalie Silverman, your host. And if this is your first listen to the podcast, what I'm hoping to achieve from making these podcasts is to give you a takeaway from this episode. Maybe you've already started treatment and you're looking to suss out what you do next. Maybe you're just starting to work out why you're not getting pregnant as quickly as you'd hoped. All of my interviews are either with experts or with people working within the fertility world or people sharing their stories and I have an online community, I'll give you all the details at the end of the episode for you to join and I'm trying to get more back from you as to what it is you need to find out more about. I've been doing this podcast now for over four years, it's just been my four year anniversary And I had treatments in 2014, successful ICSI treatment. My little boy is three and a half. And I just feel that listening to this kind of stuff is, is really helpful, which is what you're telling me. Now, um... I also want to be able to talk to you more. So I've been doing more chats in my Facebook group for you to get involved with. And I've been asking you to let me know how the podcast is helping you. In particular, what episodes are really helpful so I can do more of them. And I want to just give some shout outs to Wendy and Katie who got in touch. Uh, Also Lucy, Sinead, Pat, Sandra Naomi Laura C Kelly and Justine all new members in my uh, closed Facebook group I've decided to not give you surnames because I'm assuming you've probably joined the closed group rather than liking my page because maybe you don't want people on your Facebook feed to know this is where you're at and so you don't really need your whole name out there in case someone random that knows you hears it and I would hate it if I was the one that told someone else that you were having some kind of fertility struggle. Sadly, we don't talk about this still as much as we should, but... There is an amazing community online, which, like I say, I'll I'll point you to how you can connect with me at the end of this episode. There's also lots going on to educate you more, to help you understand all the different elements that involve your fertility and affect it. And my guest today is Sarah Norcross, the director of the Progress Educational Trust, otherwise known as PET, and commissioning editor of its flagship publication, BioNews. Sarah, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me on, Natalie.
0: And I know that you're kind of listening of credits of things you do is is longer than what i've just said you're involved in quite a few different things aren't you
1: yes i like to keep myself busy um, and it's you know in this area of assist. To reproduction and genetics and genomics there's just so much going on all the time that it's um it's a fascinating area to be in and to be i feel very privileged that i can get involved in lots of different projects that are going on at the same time
0: and i'll pass across in different guises at the fertility show at fertility fest and i've been hounding sarah a bit to say i really want to talk to you on the podcast because let's start with talking about how pet came to be let's go back to 1985 and tell me what happened to lead to the creation of it
1: well in 1985 um there was a Private members' bill was brought um, by Enoch Powell, a um, very famous politician for other reasons. Uh, mm. sort of "Rivers of Blood" speech, but he, in effect, mm. brought forward a bill that would have banned embryo research in the UK and also probably IVF, um, which seems really shocking now. You know, with so many people accessing that treatment, it being available more or less on the NHS, um, that that would ever we would have ever been in that situation. But back in the 80s, it was very very different, and so a, a group of um interested clinicians um academics um politicians all banded together to resist um that bill and they succeeded but only quite narrowly so they continued as a as a lobby group to campaign to make sure that embryo research um, and fertility treatment would remain um, something that was possible in the UK. Um, they succeeded in that. And then, as time went on and the HFEA was formed, um, the regulator for fertility treatment, uh, that meant then that the sort of the lobbying part of their work was over. And so, they founded a charity so that um, if such a situation arose again where it right, looked like it was coming under threat, um, there was a sort of hub um to sort of act as you know to to prevent it Uh, and also that by giving people in putting out you know good quality information Um, about these issues, about the science, um, about the ethical issues involved, that then it would mean that people could, um, you know, improve their understanding. And and often it goes with, you know, the more people understand something that they're not sure about, the more likely they are to accept it.
0: Mm. I mean, it seems astounding that that almost happened when we are in the 40th anniversary year of IVF, being in existence, and that it was something created in this country, but we know that there was a lot of well issues around the funding that was going around when Steptoe and Edwards were trying to push forward what they were doing wasn 't there
1: oh absolutely you know they you know they were turned down for funding by the medical research council you know it was only because an American benefactress um, who remained anonymous until very recently, um, came forward that, you know, they, that they had the financial wherewithal to do this. Um, you know, it was very, very controversial, um, you know, at the time. And, I, you know, I was, a, I was a child when Louise Brown was born, but I can remember the headlines and I can have dim recollections of, you know, my mum saying, we you know people are playing god
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> um but you know how time change. and my mother's opinion certainly changed on the issue
0: well talking about playing god one of the other amazing things that's happened uh this year is this completion of the hundred thousand genomes project established by the government. Can you tell me more about it and and the, your involvement?
1: Yeah, well, it's not quite finished yet because right. they've not sequenced the hundred thousandth genome yet, but they're on track to do that by the end of this year. Um, but this was set up as a sort of project by David Cameron um and you know he was sort of is very uh, personally involved in this project at the beginning wanted to put the uk at the center of you know whole genome sequencing and research and to unlock the power of genomics and put it into the nhs so this was very much set up as a pilot project it's piloted sort of lots of different strands of work really including you know how what sort of consent that we need from people to take part in this research, the public engagement and how we get people to better understand what the genome is, what whole genome sequencing is, Um, you know, getting patient panels set up so that, you know, people who have been sequenced and been part of the project continue to feed into how patient information leaflets and that sort of thing is delivered, Um, how we how we get all this data and what we do with it who has access to it how they access it how we keep it safe Mm. how we keep it so that people aren't going to be identified there are so many issues with it both logistics and you know for society as a whole that you know is a huge huge project
0: can you explain a bit about the genome sequence for people listening going what? i don't know anything about this
1: yeah well um the whole the hundred thousand genomes project in effect um was recruiting people who were patients so you have to you know either mostly they either have a rare disease or their child has a rare disease um or they have cancer. And so that what's been happening is they've been, you know, taking a sample of DNA and sequencing the whole of the genome. So it's a huge amount of data that you get. And, you know, we're under no illusions that we fully understand all this data yet or fully understand how, you know, when things are sort of quite complex, how the genes interact with one another, um, how the different proteins interact, how, you know, things that we don't, aren't genes but are RNA or um the epigenome you know we 're sort of at the you know we 're not quite at the beginning of our understanding, but we 're not at the end of our understanding yet, and so it 's sort of looking at all these things, especially for rare diseases, trying to give people um an answer to what it is that either they or their child has um as a disease because sometimes for people just being able to give the give what you 've got a name mm. is actually you know, really important, just that on its own makes you feel better. But also by, you know, by the power of numbers with this and, you know, and linking with people overseas, you know, for these very rare diseases, it means that they can, you know, suddenly hook up with someone in Canada who's also got a family that have got this very rare condition. And then, you know, they've got, you know, more than one set of data to look at, more than one family, you know, to talk to and try and understand what the implications are for this and and how best to treat it so you know it's sort of lots of different things, but in the cancer um, world, then people are having their, uh, taking the genome from the cancer and looking at that to see what sort of cancer it is, and in the future we'll be looking at personalised medicine and we hope that pharmaceutical companies will be developing drugs that can be tailored to particular tumours not all breast cancer is the same, for example there are different types and different types require different treatment, we know that already, but what this project is seeking to do is to refine that it's, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's quite complicated. It, it is,
0: but mind-bending stuff. And and as far as fertility, because obviously with this podcast having that focus on the educational aspect of people's fertility, what kind of conversations and and research and linking it is is there going on with regards to if people are trying to get pregnant and struggling and and maybe there's a history of something in their family.
1: Most of these tests would only be available to them in the private sector, mm-hmm. for so for something like you know if you happen to know that there was a high risk of something you may then choose to have carrier screening so before you started trying to have a baby you and your partner would go and have genetic tests to see if you'd got a condition that you may pass on to the child so so that's one option but often what what can happen is people sometimes have they have a child that's affected by a genetic condition. Um, they want to have more children, um, but don't want to want to have a, another disabled child. And so they might go for something called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, PGD, where they have IVF. Uh, the embryos are then tested to see if they have the genetic condition, and then they... Choose to have ones that are not effective transferred back, and hopefully, it results in a pregnancy and a healthy baby. So, that's another option for people. That's a very established method in the UK. We've been doing that for a long time, and that can be available to people on the NHS.
0: Now, one thing that PET does, and we'll talk about some of the previous events that you've held, is numerous events to talk about all the different work going on with an attempt to advance public understanding and some of the previous events you've held are the real cost of ivf time weights for no man talking about the impact of age on male fertility talking about lifestyle choices improving the odds of ivf working for you in the main aims for pets obviously we just talked about that advancing the public understanding there's so much to be discussed i mean you must have no shortage for your programs
1: there is no shortage at all in fact you know our biggest frustration that you know are things that we can't do you know it is very frustrating but really our aim is to improve choices for people who are affected by fertility problems or genetic conditions because you know improving their choices is 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 the sort of really important way that we frame it it's not making their choices for them it's giving them the information so that they're equipped to make the choices that are best for them, because this is really very personal for people. You know, not everyone wants to go down the route of having genetic testing before they have a baby. They're, you know, not everybody, some people feel very strongly about alternative medicine and they, you know, genuinely believe that some of these treatments can boost their chances of success, you know, but you know, we want to go into them to go into it armed with what the evidence is, whether it's about reflexology or whether it's about what the HFEA, the regulator, would call an add-on treatment such as assisted hatching or embryo glue or endometrial scratch. So, you know, there are are all so many different things out there that it's, you know, it's difficult for people to, to make those decisions.
0: And there's always a host of experts available at the events. They're open to the public mainly in london or scotland at the moment aren't they
1: yes we are very fortunate that the um scottish government decided to fund us to do a range of events in scotland people from the scottish government have been coming down to london for years to come to our events and then one day just said would you do these in edinburgh and of course We'd be delighted to. Who doesn't love going to Edinburgh? It's a fantastic city. Mm. We struggle to get out of London simply because usually of funding issues, you know, we need people to donate or bodies to fund us to do these things. You know, in London, you know, there are a lot of people. So we reach a lot. We know we're going to reach a lot of people.
0: And there is a lot of information on your website, which we will share in the show notes. And I'm interested in whether you've seen a shift in, the types of people coming to your events, for example, have there been a uh, growth of more single women or same-sex couples that you've noticed or not?
1: We haven't really noticed and we don't sort of drill down in that data for people who come to our events. We haven't noticed a particular shift because we don't really capture it, I suppose is, is, is the best way to put that. We don't know whether they're someone who's going through fertility treatment. We don't know if they're an academic studying this area for social science. And of course, you know, we have to th- be careful as well not to silo people. If you saw someone's coming and you realise, you know, they're a professor of whatever it is, it doesn't mean they're not actually going through fertility treatment. And yeah. um, they may be coming for very, you know, for very, for multiple reasons, both professional and personal or actually just personal. And obviously, that's something that a lot of people still hold very privately. But, you know, we always get quite an eclectic audience there of people who can be students, patients, journalists, as well as policymakers, and obviously people who work in the sector whose job it is. So yeah, it's it is quite a mixed bag.
0: You're also involved in the Fertility Fairness uh, organisation. Is that still the case? You're still the chair for Fertility Fairness. Yes,
1: I'm still co-chair of Fertility Fairness, and we're going to be launching our data on the uh, provision of IVF across England um, in. Uh, National Fertility Week, uh, end of October, beginning of November. Um, uh, And we've been doing the the freedom of information requests of all the clinical commissioning groups. So we'll be able to report on what the latest picture is on that.
0: Okay, because for people outside the UK, who I'm sure you're aware to an extent that we've had this whole issue in the UK of what we've termed the postcode lottery, there's currently this new petition with Fertility Network called Screen for IVF trying to get this discussed more... In Parliament, I mean, how do you feel about how the landscape's changing with this issue?
1: I think we really do have to get behind it more to change policy on these things. You know, you need to win both the hearts and the minds of people to this. And unfortunately, there are still people um, out there who think that um, fertility, infertility, is a lifestyle choice. Um, It's uh, the, the the hand that nature has dealt you, and you should just willingly accept your lot. Um, And obviously, you know, I vehemently disagree with that position, Um, but that's why it's so important, you know, that we have... You know campaigns like Scream for IVF to raise awareness and to get people who've been affected by infertility, or just think it's the right thing, um, that people should be able to access treatment to make their voices heard, because there are a lot of naysayers out there as well.
0: And to just recap on the report that Fertility Fairness are going to be publishing, just to explain again for people outside the UK, the CCGs are the local councils who are deciding whether or not they give funding to IVF being funded on the NHS. And is am I right in saying that? you're looking at who's cutting that funding
1: yeah so we have a very strange system in england where we have around 200 clinical commissioning groups so that's like your local your local doctor is part of one of those and so they're just in england and they decide how they spend their budget locally they have sort of great power as to what they do with their money and what we've seen over the years is those groups as you know with been in austerity for a long time we just stopped talking about it but as their budgets have been squeezed one of the first things that they look to cut is fertility treatment for people fertility fairness has been campaigning and pushing backs every time we get to hear about it there's a consultation we respond we try and speak to the clinical commissioning group and also we engage with with their mps that in that area if we can um to try and hold it and sometimes we're successful sometimes we aren't and we've had quite a few successes which is great but you know it's it's a very difficult situation because central government has sort of devolved to these local groups and government is very loath to take that power back mm. because clearly they can then blame someone else so it's sort of a bit of a blame game so the government can say well it's clinical commissioning groups they shouldn't be doing that. They should be following the guideline that was put out by NICE, wherein in fact, um, you know, the clinical commissioning groups are saying, well, we can't do everything. You're not giving us enough money, government. So, um, and well unfortunately, said. yeah. So, un- and unfortunately, fertility patients are the ones who are suffering as a result of this sort of circular argument.
0: Is there a country that you know about that you think, if only we did it like them, that's leading yes. in the way? Who?
1: It's not far away. Scotland.
0: Okay. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Denmark or somewhere. Okay, even nearer.
1: No, Scotland. Yeah. Scotland is NICE compliant, so everyone can access up to three cycles of IVF. They have a standard eligibility criteria in line with what NICE recommended, and if you've got a child from a previous relationship, you can also access treatment. So Scotland is the place to be. We don't need to look any further than that to have something that would help the majority of people in England.
0: And you've got your conference this December looking at how it's been 10 years since the last major overhaul of UK fertility and embryo law.
1: It's interesting with our law in this, that, you know, it was a big overhaul in 2008. But, you know, the science has changed so much and society has changed so much. You know, in 2008, we didn't have gay marriage more same-sex couples are trying to access treatment also in in 2008 you know we didn't really i don't think predict the power of the internet and how things would be happening the whole sort of finding a sperm donor online scenario and the sort of difficulties that that throws up to people um, you know finding someone outside a licensed treatment center and, and you know potentially exposing them yeah the legal yeah. obligations potentially exposing themselves to health risks as well um so you know there's that whole area and then of course there is the changes that have happened in how we freeze gametes how we freeze especially how we freeze eggs so we there's a, a new technique that has been more robustly tested since then called vitrification which freezes eggs much better than the old method of doing so and it means that women can potentially have greater reproductive choice because they can freeze eggs and use them later in life but when that law was passed in 2008 if women were storing those eggs for non-medical reasons and getting older not having eggs is not a medical reason because that happens to everybody they can only store them for 10 years and so you know and there's sort of equality issues around that uh, because it's not the same for men um, but unfortunately, you know, human biology is not a feminist, it's not read the Equalities Act. Um women's fertility is limited in a way that men's isn't. So, you know, it is a battle. But there is, has been discussion about it in the House of Lords. Baroness Ruth Deach is very much leading the charge in the House of Lords about trying to extend that ten year period. But you know, we need to sort of have conversations, I think, as a society and as a sort of community of people interested in fertility about what we think, if we extend it, we should extend it to, yeah. whether we need to put limits on it, what if any safeguards are needed, because you know it is a very commercial sector. And uh, you know, we don't want to say, well, let's extend freezing uh, however many years to end up either at one end of the spectrum seeing women as soon as they graduate from university being heavily targeted by marketing to freeze their eggs. <laughs> Um, And then we don't want to see at the other end, you know, a 70-year-old woman turning up at a fertility clinic saying, right, it's time to unfreeze my eggs. I've retired. (laughs) I want to have my baby now.
0: Yeah. Or do we want freezers full of eggs that were just frozen and never used?
1: And never get used. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, there are lots of issues that we need to bottom out before, you know, any change is made, I think.
0: And Sarah, you work tirelessly in this field. Do you... Do you get rewards? Do you feel that you are moving forward? Or is it like one step forward, two step back? Um, I do
1: think that we move forward. We've done that on a number of things over the years. We were very involved in the campaign for changing the law around mitochondrial donation, um, what's often three-person IVF, as the media like to call it, um, to allow women to use egg donation and use, this is complicated to explain uh, quickly, so a couple want to have a baby, the woman always um, passes on her mitochondria to the baby, it's nothing to do with the sperm, it's all from the egg there's mitochondrial disease in that family they wish to avoid it so what she used is a donor egg which has healthy mitochondria they take the nuclear material um usually in this country from a very early fertilized embryo and they put it into the donor egg which has had its nuclear part taken away then that's put back in the woman, and it should give rise to a healthy baby that's the theory Ooh, um and which is totally amazing and that was a huge piece of work that we did so that was, was great another area where i wanted to do something that's finally starting to happen is surrogacy because the law in that is really quite old and it's been creaking along. Um, judges have been finding ways around it,
0: disregarding the parental order.
1: Great regarding parental orders for single people, but also there's lots of different issues in there. Um, you know but judges have managed to work around some but not others yeah. and so that really the whole thing needs yeah. to you know let's start with a blank piece of paper and um, mm. and if we're doing it framing the law now how would we do that how do we best protect the interests of the surrogate of the intended parents and most importantly of any children born as a result of surrogacy
0: Sarah's covered a lot there and I will reference in the show notes for this episodes that I've made on egg freezing and also speaking to a lawyer specialising in surrogacy law and issues around that just if you are in that place and you're thinking yes talk more because otherwise i'll be talking to sarah for all, all day <laughs> i know you've got a lot to do well look, it's been fascinating talking to you and best of luck with the december conference which i will put the details in the show notes because the public can attend is that right
1: yes um our conference is the one event that we do charge for because it's a full day conference we like to get uh, as many different people there as possible so it'd be great if some came along
0: sarah thank you for your time
1: thanks very much Natalie.
0: If you're looking for a supplement to take whilst trying to conceive pregnant care conception and Wellman conception provide advanced nutritional support they include zinc vitamin d and the exact levels of folic acid recommended for women by the uk department of health pregnant care is expert nutritional care while trying for a baby and to find out more visit the fertilitypodcast.com forward slash shop Now, I know how daunting it is finding out information about fertility issues. So I wanted to tell you about The Fertility Show. It's on the 3rd and 4th of November at Olympia in London and is open to anyone struggling with fertility issues or wanting to start a family. You can meet experts face-to-face, attend the brilliant seminars by leading fertility specialists and get your questions answered at the Let's Talk Fertility stage. Visit thefertilityshow.co.uk for more information. Okay, so the show notes for this episode are thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash pet, P-E-T. And as I mentioned, there'll be links to other episodes that I've referenced. If you want to get in touch with me about an episode that you'd like me to make, please email Natalie at the Fertility Podcast. You can follow my socials at fertilitypoddy on Insta and on Twitter. And please do join the Closed Fertility Group. And please do join... My Facebook page is the Fertility my facebook page is the fertility podcast and please do join my closed fertility group talk fertility where i'm popping up there more and more to have chats with you but i've got experts from previous episodes to help answer your questions and it's a brilliant community so i've been going very long but people are really helping each other out and i hope it's maybe a bit different to some of the other groups because i have got access to those experts and i'll continue to field questions that i see to people that i know and hopefully make future episode also don't forget about the ultimate fertility guide which is my website listing all sorts of different fertility resources and what I'm doing is video interviews with all the members of the guide so you can find out more about what it is they offer and you can ask them questions too. You'll be able to see the next one on my Facebook page uh, this Wednesday the 26th of September 2018 and then we'll be on my Ultimate Fertility Guide YouTube channel which there's going to be more and more video interviews for you to watch and understand more and learn more about. Thank you as always for your support. I hope this podcast has helped and until the next time.